Earlier in the service, before we prayed the Amidah, I gave you a heads up that we might be talking about the patriarchs and matriarchs a little bit later, and now is that moment. When we began the Amidah, the first paragraph, the first prayer, the Avot and Imahot, we prayed to God in a familiar way, addressing God as Elohei Abraham, Elohei Yitzchak, Elohei Yaakov, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then, of course, as we know, we add the Imahot. And the reason why we prefer to God this way is that when we open up the Amidah, which is a reminder of the most central prayer in the service, we're trying to remind God of who we are, not just random schmoes sitting in pews, but the worthy descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who knew God intimately. And obviously, in our Reform Sidur, we don't just stop with those three. We add in the matriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, demonstrating that their memory is just as important. For the past few decades, nearly all Reform and many conservative Jews have added, added the Imahot to the Amidah. But there's something curious in the phrasing, or really in the placing, of the matriarch's names. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob each follow one another generationally. But while Sarah precedes Rebecca, who precedes Rachel and Leah, the last two are somewhat out of order. Leah is older, after all. And as we read in this week's Parsha, Leah is also the one whom Jacob marries first. So you'd think that Rachel and Leah would be swapped or would be presented differently in our prayer the way that we might assume that they would go chronologically. The phrasing that modern Jews use in the Amidah comes from a more traditional blessing for daughters, where the order is given that Rachel should come first. Multiple halachic sources explain this, that this is because Jacob loved her more than he loved Leah. Okay, fine, that's an okay idea. Mystics, however, remove the value judgment and suggest that Rachel represents the revealed world, whereas Leah or Leah represents a world that is hidden. And we choose to give honor to the physical world before the hidden spiritual domain. I'm not convinced by that one, but that's what they say. Fine, sure, a little less judgmental. But whether it's for one of these reasons or it's something else, it seems clear that Leah is treated fairly, unfairly, I think, by our tradition. It seems unfair that she should come second. But then again, that's par for the course in her story. Many of you know this story already. Jacob arrives in Haran, where he settles with his uncle Laban. He falls in love with Laban's beautiful daughter Rachel and works for seven years to marry her. But on his wedding night, Laban tricks Jacob by giving him his elder, unmarried daughter Leah instead. Genesis 29-25 explains it with characteristically sparse language. And when morning came, there was Leah. That's literally what it says. I feel like it's intended to be read in precisely that tone. Apparently, Jacob didn't realize his mistake until the next day. The Torah doesn't go into detail about how exactly Jacob could have possibly not figured it out sooner. But suffice it to say that Jacob married the wrong woman and had to work for Laban another seven years in order to marry Rachel. You may recall Perchik from Fiddle Around the Roof explaining this story to say that you should never trust an employer. 
It's an iconic scene in Jewish-American cinema. Though there is something almost comic in the staging of this episode, it is actually a deeply painful moment for all parties involved. Jacob is deceived by his uncle. Rachel is forced to watch her sister marry her beloved. And above all, Leah winds up married to someone who doesn't love her back. We typically teach this story by understanding Rachel as far more physically attractive than Leah, which would suggest that Jacob is somehow shallow in his preference for Rachel. But the text doesn't actually say that. The verse says, The ene lea rakot, the Rachel haita yafat toar bifat mareh. Translating this in reverse, it's clear that Rachel was shapely and beautiful, but it doesn't say that Leah was ugly. It says, Leah had weak eyes. The 12th century French commentator Redac suggests that Leah was actually quite beautiful as well, but her eyes were teary and soft. Rashbam, another French sage, goes so far as to say that her eyes were so beautiful that it didn't even matter what her body looked like because her eyes alone made her marriage material. These sages and others try to redeem Leah's physical appearance and try to portray Jacob as something more than merely a chauvinist pig. But there may be deeper meaning in these eyes of Leah. There must be something that she sees in a unique way. The story is actually not completely sad for Leah. In a twist of divine justice, Leah is far more fertile than her sister, Rachel. She bears seven of Jacob's 13 children. And embedded within their names, we find a clue about what precisely made Leah's vision so significant. Leah names her firstborn Ruvain, meaning the eternal has seen, Ra'a, my affliction. But the Torah also explains Ruvain to mean, now my husband will love me, Yehevani. Yehevani. This choice of name suggests that by giving birth to a son, she hopes that Jacob will finally love her. And it continues on like this. Her second son is named Shimon because God heard Shama that she was unloved. When giving birth to a third son, he, she shouts, Now my husband will become attached, Yilaveh, to me. And she names him Levi. With each child she bears, she holds out hope that Jacob will one day love her fully. But then there's a tonal shift. She bears a fourth child and her plaintive naming ends. She says, this time I will thank the Eternal. And she names him Yehuda from Odeh, Thanksgiving. At this moment, at this moment, Leah accepts her fate. She knows that Jacob might never feel the way about her that she really wants, but she's able to thank God anyhow. For his part, Jacob isn't so well served by not loving Leah. His obsession with Rachel ultimately causes a deep divide among his children who can't bear that he loves Rachel's children, Joseph and Benjamin, more than the others. And the rift causes him extreme heartbreak later in life. Jacob is as cursed as Leah in this arrangement. But I think there's something instructive for us in Leah's ability to eventually reach acceptance and gratitude. And far from getting short shrift among the patriarchs and matriarchs, Leah may actually be the true hero of 
the story. Rabbi Shai Held points us to the second century sage Shimon bar Yochai, who interpreted this story to mean that Leah was the first person ever to truly feel gratitude in her life. Earlier biblical figures were surely grateful to God for creating them and giving them extraordinary blessings. But Leah was the first to be grateful, even when life was not exclusively filled with blessing. It's easy to be grateful and thankful when everything is going well in your life. It's far harder to find that gratitude when things are dark and painful. But this is precisely what Leah achieves. She's able to find acceptance and to give thanks, specifically when Judah is born. Judah, I'll remind you, is the figure for whom we take our names as Jews. We are Yehudim, Judahites, no longer Israelites, but Judahites from Judah. And with Held's reading of Leah expressing gratitude through Judah, we can say that as Jews, we are a people who continually attempt to express gratitude even in moments of deep sadness. Surely the, the Jews have known deep sorrow over the millennia. And yet we find ways to accept our disappointment and still to give thanks in our morning blessings and our festival days and on Shabbat. Even when we feel like mourning, we still give thanks because doing so is essential to who we are. On Shabbat, we pray the Amidah in a way that is unlike other times of the week. Typically, the prayer includes a number of petitionary prayers asking God for things, asking God for justice, for a bountiful harvest, for forgiveness. But on Shabbat, we instead focus on giving thanks. The first part of the prayer praises God for being mighty. The middle focuses on the bounty of Shabbat itself, and it ends with prayers of thanksgiving yet again. Modim anach nulach. Given all that, it doesn't really feel so appropriate that Leah has to go last in our list of patriarchs and matriarchs opening the Mamidah. Since as a figure, she seems to embody so much of what the prayer is actually speaking about. But it could be that mentioning her last allows us to hold on to her, to draw her near to us, as our mother, as our source of eternal optimism and gratitude, as a maternal voice beckoning us to remember to be grateful, even when we least feel like it. Shabbat Shalom.